Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Still walking through this wonderful um, gospel together. And we're in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. And this is the word of the living God. And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And, he, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was, as he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there, are many, there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Maybe uh, over the years, as you've read through the Bible, um, you've captured various themes in Scripture, as as, as I have. And, you know, one of the things as I read the Bible over the years that um, I've been just impressed by is that in Scripture we're constantly presented with two contrasting realities, only two sides to everything. For example, there are only two ways, the narrow way or the broad way. There are only two places that a person can spend eternity, heaven or hell. There are only two types of children in this world, those who are the children of God or those who are the children of the devil. There are only two kinds of people, people who walk in light or people who walk in darkness. There is only the dead, spiritually speaking, or the living, spiritually speaking. There are only those who walk by the Spirit or those who walk by the flesh. There are people who either fear God or do not fear God at all. There are people who are either born again or they are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. There is the spiritual and the unspiritual. There are the deceived and those who walk in the truth. There are those who walk in wisdom and those who walk in foolishness. There are those who build their lives upon the firm foundation of Christ or those who build their lives upon the sandy, shaky foundation of trusting in their own merits or good works. There's no middle ground in Scripture. There are only two contrasting realities that we can be a part of. And the greatest overarching theme, contrasting reality that Scripture presents is probably the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That there are only two kingdoms. And all of those points that I just mentioned could, be, could go under that. We can either be part of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of darkness. And as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, I hope that you've noticed already that, that Jesus came into the world, into a world that was very hostile to Him, into the kingdom of darkness to show the world the light of His own glory. And the world did not like it, right? Satan doesn't like the light, and neither do his followers love the light. And so we've already seen Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, um, uh, Satan trying to trip him up at the uh, 30 years of testing and then culminating at the temptation for 40 days and 40 nights, and Jesus overcame him. Demons crying out against Jesus we've seen already, and Jesus shut them down. We've already seen all kinds of people experiencing physical sickness, but none of those sicknesses can beat Jesus. Jesus can heal anybody, right? 
And then the greatest thing that we've seen even is the spiritual sickness of people needing forgiveness of sins. And Jesus has forgiven already a man in the previous context, a paralytic. Not only does he heal him physically, but he heals him spiritually and forgives him of his sins. Jesus was a man who came to hostile territory to show us the light of his glory. And he told us that his kingdom was not of this world. And it would not be friendly toward him or towards us who are his followers. In the world you will have trouble, he told us. The world was hostile to him and it will be hostile to us, beloved. And yet, he chose to come. I mean, that's the, the story of the Gospels, right? That the Son of Man, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth to visit us even though the world was hostile to him, including ourselves. He was incarnated, came in human flesh. Why? Why did he do that? Because people loved him? Because people wanted to embrace him? He did it because he wanted to seek and reach and touch the lives of sinners such as you and I. That's why he did it. That was his mission, to speak the truth and engage people for himself, even in a hostile world such as ours. And it was not easy, right? Already we've seen some of this opposition that he has experienced. Even in the healing of the paralytic, there are the, there are the, the cream of the crop, so to speak, within Judaism. The religious leaders who are there, and they're already in opposition to him. They're already going against him. They are already trying to trap him in something. They don't like his growing popularity with the people, and neither does Jesus, frankly, because Jesus wants people to follow him genuinely from the heart. But these religious leaders are jealous. They're after him. And of course, we're going to continue to see now in the Gospel of Mark that in this hostile environment, hostility will only grow all the way to the cross when Jesus is put on that cross from the human perspective by those human beings who hated him. We're going to see that. And beloved, for those of us who are followers of Jesus in a growingly hostile world, We need to remember that just as Jesus was resolved to accomplish his mission, even though people hated him, so we should do the same. Amen? We are on mission here on this earth. So what might we learn from the ultimate missionary this morning to help us continue to join Christ and participate in his mission of reaching the lost, even in a hostile environment such as the country and the world in which we live? Even just in this community of Burbank or the surrounding communities where you might live. From this passage, we want to see that even amidst a growing hostile environment, Jesus' mission was to reach sinners for himself, and so should it be for those who call him Lord. I'll repeat that again. In this passage, we want to see how Jesus, even though he was hated and there was a growing hostile environment in his day and age, He was still resolved and committed to reach sinners for himself, and so should we even in our day and age. We must be people who, if we claim the name of Christ and say that we are disciples, followers of Christ, need to be committed more than anything else to exalting Christ, to making much of him on this earth. And people I know don't want to hear about the person and the work of Christ, right? People are hostile to the name of the Lord. But beloved, we must be diligent and faithful to that call. As our Lord was, even though he was constantly opposed. So as we look at this passage this morning, and this account, I want us to to look at this account through the eyes of three characters. Okay? Three characters. 
First of all, the sinner, who is Levi or Matthew. The self-righteous, who are the Pharisees. And thirdly, the Savior, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the sinner, the self-righteous, and the Savior. Let's look at the sinner first and foremost, Levi or Matthew, verse 13. And he went out again by the seashore, it says, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. Here is Jesus again, ministering to people as we see him over and over again, all around the Sea of Galilee, in that area of Capernaum, in the northwest side of Galilee. And as he's doing this, as he's walking, various groups continue to come to him. That's the idea there with the, with the tense of that verb, that people were continually coming to him, various groups. And what is he doing again as is, is his custom? He's teaching them the gospel. He's t- proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance and belief in him. But Mark zeroes in then in verse 14 on one key individual that he sees a man by the name of Levi. Notice verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. Mark zeroes in. Our attention is upon this individual. His name is Levi. Both Mark and Luke refer to this man as such, as Levi. But interestingly, Matthew, right? Matthew, who is Levi, in his gospel, refers to himself as Matthew, which means gift of the Lord. Interesting. I'm not, I don't think it's because Matthew lacked humility. I think he wanted to zero in, calling himself that upon his conversion and who he was after knowing Christ, right? Maybe with a little bit of a sense of shame. But Matthew refers to himself as, as Matthew. Levi became Matthew post his conversion. Maybe the Lord Jesus gave him that name. We don't know that. So this is none other than Matthew, who becomes one of the 12 apostles of Jesus and the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. You know, everyone has a story of God's saving grace, right? Matthew here, before he became one of the apostles of Jesus, Mark wants to give us a portrait of who this man was and what Jesus did in his life. Here is the cream of the crop of sinners that Mark wants to present and selecting this particular account to show us what kind of a sinner Matthew was or Levi prior to coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 tells us, if you notice, that his occupation was that of a, of a publican or a tax collector. It says that he was sitting in the tax booth. So here's Matthew. He was a Jew who worked for the Roman government, Herod Antipas at the time, in that region of, of Galilee. And he was a man who was devoted to collecting taxes for, on behalf of the Roman government, for, from his own Jewish countrymen, from his own people. National Israel. That was one thing to work an honest job, right? And to collect taxes honestly from his Jewish countrymen. But most of these individuals who were tax collectors not only collected the required taxes from the Jews that were required, but in addition would steal or pilfer some of the money for themselves. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, it speaks about how Zacchaeus, who was also a tax collector, who was converted, became a follower of Jesus. He, as a, as a fruit of repentance, committed himself to the Lord to give him back four times what he had defrauded from other people. Giving evidence that these guys were not honest guys. These tax collectors were dishonest thieves who exploited their own people, their own Jewish countrymen for personal gain. And this, of course, made them very odious in the eyes of the Jews, of their own countrymen. They considered these guys traitors. And they were also considered, 
even by their religious leaders, unclean. Why? Because they regularly were in contact with Gentiles, non-Jews, especially Romans and Roman officials. And so they were ostracized religiously and socially from the Jewish community. We've already heard about some people that Jesus reaches out to who are socially and religiously ostracized, right? Here's another category of people. These tax collectors, even though they're Jews, they're the nation of the covenant, if you will, of the Old Testament. They're ostracized individuals. But Mark tells us, if you notice, that one day everything changed for this tax collector who was hated and odious by his people, right? We learn in verse 14 that Jesus saw this man, and if you notice, he commanded him, present imperative, he commanded him, follow me. And what did Matthew do? He got up and he followed him. It's very familiar that Matthew already had heard about the Lord. Maybe by word of mouth. Maybe he was familiar with Jesus' works and words. But nevertheless, Matthew's response to the Lord's command to follow him was radical and decisive by him. This man dropped everything to follow the Lord. And notice, Jesus summons him to follow him. It's a command. And that command there to follow me is synonymous with, with repenting and trusting in Jesus. Follow me. But it also emphasizes this idea of following Christ, the the lifelong ongoing commitment that Matthew was to make to learn from and obey Jesus Christ, as well as to proclaim the name of Christ as a disciple. That's what disciples or followers of a particular teacher did. They lived the rest of their lives to learn from and obey their teacher and to proclaim the views, the, the viewpoints or opinions of that particular teacher. It wasn't a new idea to Christianity to follow somebody or to be a disciple of somebody. And so that's what Jesus is calling this man to to do. Follow me. Lifelong commitment to learn from me, to obey, obey me, and to proclaim my name. That is what the call to follow means, beloved. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 28, in the parallel account, Luke tells us that he left everything behind and rose and began to follow him. Such an understatement, isn't it? So unembellished. And yet this man, think about it. This meant that Matthew, the tax collector, abandoned his occupation. You know, unlike fishermen who could return to their occupation, tax collectors by and large could not do so as easily. They could not return to that profession, especially because now the Roman government would know that he's following this one who could potentially be a radical rebel who is against the Roman government, namely Jesus. And now he's following him? And now you want to come back and be a tax collector for us? It wasn't that easy for him to come back. This tax collector who was a very successful Quite reputable, I'm sure. As we're going to see even him inviting many people to a feast. He had a high status. He was popular. This man, beloved, was willing to forego all of these things to follow Jesus as Lord. And to pay the price of following Christ. Because Matthew would pay a high price, wouldn't he? Oh, Jesus would be opposed. Jesus would be contradicted. People would be hostile to Jesus, and they would also treat his disciples, his followers, with indifference. That's why they all fled initially when Jesus was, gonna, was being uh, ridiculed and going to the cross. Matthew would suffer a lot, and he's, he's committing. Little did he know, perhaps, everything that would happen. In fact, he didn't know it all. But there was this commitment to follow the Lord. See, the call to follow Christ, beloved, 
is much more than simply knowing information about Jesus. It's much more than simply attending events at the church. It's much more than simply you having prayed a prayer at some point in your life. It's much more than just simply making a decision in the past with no implications for your present life and the way that you live and your priorities and the goals that you pursue. Following Jesus involves a lifelong commitment to learn and obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. And out of gratitude and loving, a loving response for his salvation of us, we want to do what Jesus says. Amen? That's what it's about. It's about obeying and serving Christ your whole life, your whole life. Experiencing hatred and indifference potentially, being willing to do that, even if we might struggle in moments when people are hostile to us, and we might in weak moments, uh, in a a moment where we're called upon to share our faith, we might shy away from that and we fail and we have to come back and confess that to the Lord and seek His forgiveness. Nevertheless, there should be a willingness in all of our hearts and our prayer should be, Lord, help me to make a stand for you as a follower, a disciple of yours. That's what I want to be about. So it's a lifelong commitment. See, when Jesus saves us, as he saved Matthew, Matthew didn't do anything, right? Matthew was a sinner who came to Jesus with basically empty hands. Lord, all I have is my sin. I'm committed to following you. And Matthew entered a lifelong process to now deal with the issues in his life, all of his weaknesses, his frailties, his sins before the Lord, right? And the Lord Jesus, of course, would help him with that. That's what happens when we follow Christ freely by His grace. He not only rescues you from the punishment of your sin, but now He delivers you from the power of sin over your life so that you strive by the grace of God and the power of God to know, love, and serve Christ, making other disciples who will do the same, right? That's our mission even as a church. We join in the mission of Christ. But what did it take? What did it take for this man who was a great sinner to come to faith in Christ? Obviously, God's working in his heart, right? In a supernatural way, because he was spiritually dead in his trespasses and sins. He could not respond to anything unless the Lord worked in his heart. But Jesus, on the human level, sought this man, ministered to this man, reached out to this man who was a hated religious and social outcast, beloved. Jesus preached the gospel to this man. And we're already seeing that Jesus is not partial to anyone. He reaches out to all kinds of people. He doesn't treat people in categories. They're simply people who need to hear the message concerning himself, who need life eternal indeed. And so he preaches the gospel to them. He was impartial. All in the gospel, we see Jesus witnessing to demon-possessed people that were outcast and people were afraid of, to the sick who were also social outcasts in many ways and, and, and people stayed away from them, to the rejects and the social outcasts like lepers and paralytics, to the poor and destitute, and now to this ostracized tax collector he reaches out to. Jesus reached out to all kinds of people. See, we must never look at someone's external appearance and say you know what they are beyond the reach of god's grace oh may we, may the lord humble us that we never think that way beloved such were some of us weren't we the fornicators the homosexuals the haters the self-righteous legalists 
Those who slandered, those who stole, who were dece- the deceiving, who deceived people and exploited people, such were some of us. Some of those categories very much applied to all of us. And yet God had mercy upon each and every one of us. And he had mercy upon Matthew. God can save anyone, right? Even the worst of sinners. Just look around the room, right? Literally, look around the room, right? As I look out, I see beautiful gifts that God has brought to this church because of his saving grace. But boy, were we not good people, right? You don't want to know Kempis Hernandez prior to being 17 years old, believe me. Even now you might not want to know Kempis Hernandez, I know. But, but definitely prior to being 17 years old, believe me. I was a wretch. And even now I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I know that you can say the same thing. Oh, none of us have anything to boast in except in the cross of Christ, right? So we must look upon the world with with mercy, beloved, and compassion as Jesus does even with another outcast like a tax collector. And you know, I'm tired of hearing, and I say this in all love, I'm tired of hearing Christians within our circles and in this country talking about the fact that, oh my gosh, nobody should go live in California. Or we should all leave California now. It's way too liberal. It's way too sinful. It's way too hostile. Amen. Preach it. You know what? That's why you are needed here as a gospel-transformed citizen. To be a light in this environment. And unless the Lord moves you because of some very clearly delineated, God-ordained circumstance that makes absolute sense before the Lord and before other people that you need to leave this place, you need to stay here and be a light and preach the gospel to the people who are here. Amen? Christ had that kind of an attitude. He came to the most hostile territory. Imagine dwelling in infinite glory and light and holiness for eternity with the Father and the Spirit. And he came into the earth and hot to hostile territory and nobody loved him. But as many as received him, says John chapter 1, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. But he says his own did not receive him. People rejected him. And yet he came here to earth to reach sinners such as Levi and Matthew and Kempis and Brad and Andrea and Jim and all kinds of people in this room, right? Sinners saved by grace. Well, notice also, secondly, that Matthew was no phony, right? No fake. So grateful was Levi or Matthew that he threw an evangelistic feast for Jesus a public party in his own home on top of that, unashamed to be identified with the Lord and even some religious leaders show up, right, to his home. So we see, secondly, the self-righteous, the Pharisees, the self-righteous in verses 15 and 16. Notice verse 15, And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, that is in Matthew's house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So overjoyed by Jesus' work in his life, you know what Matthew does? He doesn't run away from the Lord. He's not ashamed. He wants all of his co-workers and many other people to come and hear Jesus and be exposed to Christ who can also save them from their sins. So he throws this big feast in his home and he invites many different people. And notice how Mark describes as he's recording this account for us. He could have chosen many other terms and he could have just said, and there were many kinds of people there, including some of those publicans. 
Three different times, Mark says, in verses 15 and 16, he says that there were many tax collectors and sinners. Sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners. What is he doing? He's accentuating the outrage of this, right? That this was outrageous that Jesus would come into somebody's home like Matthew, a tax collector whom the Jews uh, ostracized. And on top of that, now he's interacting with all kinds of tax collectors and sinners, sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners. Why does he have to keep repeating it? Outrageous, right? Mark records for us that Matthew was so overjoyed by God's work in his life that Matthew invites all kinds of people in the realm of his influence. And Jesus, in verse 15, is eating and dining with many of these people. I mean, it's one thing to to interact with with some of these non-believers, especially these social outcasts, in a general kind of informal way, but he's dining with them. Which in those days was very, a very intimate thing. You were practicing hospitality towards strangers, people that you didn't know, by, by bringing them into your home and really being intimate with them, enjoying a meal with them, right? See, the Lord was not afraid to spend time with people who needed to hear concerning Himself, right? Who needed to see Him. And please remember this. This segment of the Jewish community, tax collectors, were not people that Jesus would have an opportunity to see or interact with in the synagogues where he constantly taught, right? Because they were not allowed to go into the synagogues. They were considered to be unclean. And so Jesus is going to unreached peoples, even in his own area. These ostracized individuals. Now listen, was he compromising? Was he adopting their way of life? Was he going away from his being, deviating from his mission of the preaching the gospel? Absolutely not. But how was he going to proclaim the gospel of his father's kingdom if he avoided non-believers? How would he, how was he going to do that? If Jesus just, I need to protect myself. I need to protect my infinite glory and my holiness. I cannot be around people like that. Right? How do we impact people that we try to avoid all the time? You know, this was a major problem with the nation of Israel, by the way. God in the Old Testament had graciously, not because the nation of Israel deserved God's goodness or because they were better than any other nation, He, because of just His divine favor, His sheer grace shown toward them, had chosen them to be His special nation through whom He would bless the nations around them. But you know what happened with the nation of Israel? They became selfish, self-entitled, exclusivistic, right? Self-righteous. So that they viewed everybody around them as objects of scorn. Instead of, of wanting to be an instrument in the hands of God to reach those people and show them the glory of Yahweh. The nation of Israel became exclusivistic. And by the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, this was the way the religious leaders especially were. The Pharisees who are there at this, at this party, either they were invited or they're standing at the door just watching Jesus from a distance. These Pharisees, these, the, even the scribes who are there, who were the, the cream of the crop, the scholars, the theologians amongst the Pharisees are there. They're the extreme separatists. And these individuals, beloved, ostracized people, if anyone was not deemed according to their own standards as holy and pure. They ostracized these people. And it wasn't that they were wrong for wanting obedience to the Mosaic law. 
God required obedience from people in the Old Testament, right, to his law. It was the fact that they missed the heart and the intent of the law, which Jesus in Matthew, didn't he, summarized for us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to second one is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the law of commandments in the Old Testament was ultimately an expression of love for God and love for your fellow neighbor, right? Everything. They missed the heart of that. And the intent of that. And they were rigid externalists. Devoid of heart for the Lord. Devoid of love for Him. I mean, by the time of Jesus' day, they had put up up some 600 plus positive and negative commandments as a sort of hedge around the law, beloved, so that people wouldn't even come close to breaking the Mosaic law. Think about that. These guys were legalists. And they considered their traditions as more important than following the law of God. In Matthew 23, Jesus goes after these guys, calling them hypocrites who don't do what they expect people to do, who tie heavy burdens upon people and lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to follow their own commandments. He, he, he pronounces judgment upon them for being men-pleasers who love the place of honor, who love to be well-respected, and who look down upon other people, such as a Matthew the tax collector. And he pronounces woes on them for being so concerned about the externals while neglecting the heart. Well, that's who these religious leaders were, these scribes of the Pharisees. Notice in verse 16, they're there. And they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. And they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? They don't go to Jesus directly, by the way. What do they do? They went to his disciples. And most likely Jesus found out about their opinions and their criticism of him through his disciples. And they took offense at him. What's your teacher thinking? What is up with him? I mean, it's one thing to interact with these people. It's quite another one to have a meal with them and to even be lying on his side, talking to them and interacting with them in that capacity. And they're an outrage. In Luke chapter 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes were saying that this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. That's what became characteristic of Jesus. That he spent time regularly with people who needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel concerning himself. So they're in outrage and disbelief. You know what they lack, beloved? A God-centered perspective, right? That was their problem. Because Israel was never to hold on to the blessing and the favor of God for themselves. The blessing would come through the nation of Israel to all the other nations through the Jewish Messiah, right? And even being a part of the chosen national Israel didn't allow them to be a part of the chosen people of God. They needed to trust in the Messiah. If they would have understood that perspective, then they would know, wow. They could look at Jesus and say, wow, we need to follow the example of our Jewish national Jesus, reaching out to the nations, talking to them about himself and the future kingdom. We want people to be a part of that. That's what they should have been doing. Right? The cream of the crop religious leaders, the great theologians, should have been the most evangelistic people because their zeal should have been for the glory of God. And instead, what are they doing? They're self-righteous, pointing their fingers at Jesus and saying, what's up with him? What's up with this guy? 
But this was his mission. His mission was to reach the lost. Reach the lost, right? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, our theme verse. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we're moving in the gospel of Mark towards the cross of Christ. That's why Mark is the, is the, is the gospel of action. We're moving to the cross because that's why Jesus came. He came to die for sinners and take upon himself the fullness of the Father's wrath on our behalf, right? They missed it. They missed it. But this was his mission, well, we've seen the sinner Levi, the self-righteous, the Pharisees. Thirdly, notice the Savior Jesus. The Savior Jesus in verse 17. And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in the parallel account of Luke chapter 5, verse 32, it says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice they are outraged by Jesus' actions, and they are attacking him. And Jesus says, you essentially have missed my purpose. This is why I came. I came to seek people like this, sinners. I love this. Our Lord Jesus was a master at exposing the heart of a problem, right? I love this about our Lord. We can learn so much from him. And he exposes the hearts of these religious leaders by way of an illustration and then the punchline of the illustration, if you notice. The illustration is that of a patient and of a doctor or physician in that relationship there. What kinds of people go to a doctor, beloved? People who are sick. You don't go to a doctor who sometimes causes you pain, right? If you feel fine. You go to a doctor when you're sick, when something aches, when you're suffering. That's when you go to a doctor. We go to a doctor because we're dependent upon somebody else's expertise, right? Namely that physician to show us because of his vast knowledge about that particular problem that we have. And they have the wisdom to prescribe the most effective medicine for that particular sickness. What a master exposer Jesus is, right? What a master exposer. But what is true about a patient that you need to recognize that you need the doctor, right? Many of us men don't recognize that we need doctors, right? I'm a fairly proud guy, and the elders say, amen to that, brother. But you know, over the years, I have a very difficult time going to the doctor. And I grew up with a, with a father figure, my uncle, who I don't think I ever remember in all the years that I was there as a little kid and then junior high and then high school and a couple of years into college and even to this day, I don't remember one time seeing or hearing about him ever visiting the doctor. Some of you guys can probably say the same thing, right? Some of you men. I mean, some of us don't like going to doctors, right? We're men. Who needs a doctor? I can, I'm tough. I can do this on my own, right? I can heal myself. I just take some natural things around here. I'll get some more rest. We don't go to doctors. And beloved, sometimes this is the way that it is in the spiritual realm for people, isn't there? There are people in this world that don't see their desperate need and the desperate spiritual predicament that they're in, and they won't go to Jesus. They don't see themselves as sinners. They don't see themselves as seriously having offended a holy and just God. They don't see the gravity and the magnitude of their sin committed against the Lord. 
They don't see that they haven't lived out their purpose to glorify Him and enjoy their Creator here on this earth, that they've lived for themselves. And so they don't run to the divine physician. And that's part of the idea here, right? You go to a doctor if you're physically sick and you recognize in desperation that you need that doctor. So it is in the spiritual realm. If you don't see yourself as a sinner like Levi, the tax collector, then you won't run to the physician, right? And the self-righteous Pharisees didn't recognize their need that they were sinners too so as to run to Christ. They didn't see it. That they too were in this desperate predicament. You know what? These guys were right. These guys were right about the fact that these guests, and even as Mark records it, these guests are tax collectors and sinners. True or not? Yes. The problem was, and what Jesus is exposing through his illustration, and right now the punchline is this, these religious leaders didn't view, put, include themselves as part of that category that everybody belongs to universally, every human being, namely you are a sinner who is an affront to a holy God, Right? That was the problem. They recognized, oh, you shouldn't be interacting with tax collectors and sinners. Problem is, look in the mirror, right? You're in the same place. You're in the same category. And so their problem was self-righteousness. It wasn't just the guests that were there. Tax collectors, sinners, everybody who was there that needed forgiveness of their sins, that needed the great physician, it was also themselves. They needed the Lord as well. You know, this passage hits us between the eyes on three fronts, doesn't it? First of all, for those of you who don't know Christ, I think you know what's coming, right? If you're not a Christian, if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord of your life, do you see that you have a spiritual problem? This text would tell you that that you fall into that category as I fall into that category of being a sinner who needs forgiveness of sins. But you've got to see that you have a problem, that you've broken God's law and rebelled against your Maker, that you are guilty as charged by a holy and just God, and that you deserve God's coming punishment for your sins. Do you recognize this? I say to you that you need to recognize your desperate and hopeless predicament that you are in. If you are going to run to the great remedy, the great physician, you must come to Christ. He who lived a a perfect, sinless, spotless, blameless life. Who alone qualified to go to the cross and bear our sins and pay the punishment for our sins. Who alone overcame sin and death on our behalf by rising again from the dead on the third day. And one day he is exalted and he's returning for those who are his own and to judge the living and the dead, right? Oh, there's such great news for all of us, right? The worst of sinners, if we can put it that way. You know, there really aren't categories like that. Some of us are the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, as Paul said in 1 Timothy. And yet Jesus has has forgiven us. There is always, always hope. And if these religious leaders would have heard the point of Jesus' message to them at the time and even after in the Gospel of Mark, listen, there was hope for them as well, right? And some of the religious leaders did come to know Christ. Very few and far between, but some of them did. So that is the first implication of this text. For those of you who don't know the Lord, come to Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in the only hope who is Jesus Christ. 
He's the, great, he's the greatest token of God's love, right, to the world? Even though we don't deserve that love, God has given us His Son to die for our sins. He is our only hope. There's another implication for us who are believers, those of us who are Christians. You know, the call to follow, beloved, if you're a Christian this morning, is a lifelong, total commitment for the rest of your life until the Lord takes you home on the physical level, right? Lifelong, total commitment. So that means right now, are there areas of your life that you are not submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Are there places in the closet of your own heart that are secret from your spouse or from other close people to you or from your leaders or whoever that you are not submitting to Jesus Christ as a follower of Jesus Christ? Are there things that you need to repent of? Because we enter a life of repentance when we come to faith in the Lord, right? of putting off sin and putting on Christ by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, of becoming more and more holy, more set apart from sin unto Christ. So in your following of Jesus Christ, are there areas of your life that you need to repent of and submit to the Lord and confess? Can I encourage you to do that today? To confess to the Lord those areas of your life that you're not submitting to Him. Maybe a relationship. Maybe privately delving into pornography for some of you men. Maybe some of you ladies. Maybe entertaining an affair with somebody at a work environment or another context. Maybe a relationship that needs to be reconciled. Maybe not evangelizing and sharing Christ with people. Or is there an area that you need to repent of and turn to Christ again as a believer in your ongoing sanctification, that process of becoming more and more like Jesus? Follow me, right? Learn from me, obey me, your whole life, totally outside and especially within, right? From the heart. That's the call to follow Christ. Thirdly, it also has implications for us as believers as to our mission here on this earth. As to our mission here on this earth. See, beloved, it shouldn't be this way. But unfortunately and sadly, it is for many of us and most... Most often than not, it's, it's more subtle. That the longer that we walk with Christ, without wanting to perhaps, unknowingly, maybe other people can see this in our lives, the more that we walk with Christ, the more self-righteous we have become. The more that we become um, people who are in our outlook of people around us in our society, yes, people who are sinners such as us, we get this attitude of cons- constantly just criticizing the world. Constantly looking at people in our society and looking down upon them. And avoiding all kinds of non-Christians altogether. Why? Because we want to protect ourselves. Because we want to be safe. And we want to be secure. And we want to be comfortable. Or because we're fearful. Because we're fearful. And instead of being humble and broken over our sin as the years pass and seeing the depth of our sin so that we grow in more compassion for the people around us who definitely need the grace of God, if we needed the grace of God to deal with the depth of our sin, instead of that kind of love and compassion, we become self-righteous, looking with indifference and disdain upon a lost world. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't hate sin. The Bible instructs us to do that. In fact, part of taking our sin seriously is to hate it, right? As God hates it. And hate it in other people too. 
But that's different than self-righteously looking down upon people who also need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only truth of Jesus who can deliver them and rescue them from the power and the penalty of their sin. And some of us just lack love, beloved. We never share our faith in Jesus Christ. If you survey your last month or year, maybe you haven't even witnessed in five minutes to anybody. These are all subtle forms of self-righteous pride. See, we forget where we've come from and where we've been, right? We forget where we've come from and where we've been. You know, I've known and come across a handful of Christian women who when they were younger were told that they would never amount to anything, who were called such things like, you're a whore, you're a tramp, you're worthless, you're going to become a prostitute if you keep going down this path. No compassion. And you know what? Now, years later, I can say this by the grace of God, that some of these are godly single women who serve godly wives, godly mothers, even a couple of pastor's wives. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in people's lives. That's what Christ is able to do for sinners. Only him. You know, I've known a fool of a full-blown lesbian feminist sinner who made every effort to speak against God and anything that God values on this earth. But God saved this woman. Christ saved her, beloved. And now she is a godly homemaker, a prolific Christian writer, and she goes around telling people her life story so that they would be delivered and rescued from that destructive lifestyle. She's even a pastor's wife. She can't even believe it. This is what Christ does. I know a guy who was a wife beater, a drunkard, a thief. And now years later, because of Christ, he's a daddy who loves his wife, loves his kids. He's a godly man, a servant in the church. That's what Jesus does for people, beloved. I know of a single gal who at one point was sexually promiscuous living for herself, but now having been saved, she's a Christ-exalting single woman who serves people in the church. She's absolutely devoted to her job and witnessing in that environment, witnessing in the church. That's what Jesus does. I know of someone who has a past, who was sexually molested, abused, and then he himself came close to killing someone. And now after coming to know Jesus, guess what he is? He's a godly deacon at a church, not this church. Okay, don't go doing research. But you know what? That would be a testimony of God's grace anyway, wouldn't it? So go do your research. But he wasn't here. He's a godly deacon at a church now. A godly man, a servant of servants. I know an older couple who I look up to who formerly thought they were believers. They were legalistic, self-righteous people. And this is coming out of their mouths. So critical about everybody else. So critical that people wouldn't measure up according to their external standards. Finally, they both came to realize at different points, but they realized that they were relying on a righteousness of their own and judging people accordingly. And they realized that they needed the righteousness of Christ. And now they're different. They're some of the most loving people. That's what Jesus does. Christ changes lives, right? This is what he does. So what's your life story? Each of us have one, right? Of God's extravagant grace whereby we have been saved from our sins and delivered from God's punishment. Each of us have that, beloved. 
it would be helpful to, for us to reflect more upon that and upon the lives of people who, have, who have, are, instru- are, are, um, are a, examples of this extravagant grace so that we wouldn't become legalistic, self-righteous people who look down upon other people as if we're any better. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? We all came in the same way. They need the Lord just as you need the Lord. No, what, no matter what your pet peeve sins are, you, if it weren't for the grace of God, you would have done the exact same things. It was God's favor all along, even before you came to know Him in conversion, that you weren't doing those things. We need to love the lost, beloved. As Christ loved people like Matthew, the ostracized social outcast. We need to love people. Listen to what Arkin Hughes writes, quote, Perhaps none of us espouse such pharisaical beliefs as these religious leaders in this text. In fact, we loathe them. But many of us live them out nevertheless. We come to Christ and in our desire to be godly, we seek, to, we seek out people like us, quote-unquote. Ultimately, we arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian, a Sunday school that is 100% Christian, prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis with Christians and eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians. I can't even pronounce that. And even our dogs are Christians. The result is... We pass by hundreds without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. None of us are Pharisees philosophically, but we may be Pharisees practically. End quote. See, we can't live in a bubble, right? We can't live in a bubble, beloved, in a, in a, just a state of fixation, which is staying safe and comfortable. And please hear me, because I hear some of your comments right now in your minds. Well, we are called not to compromise. And we also need to be careful, because God has called us to be separate from the world and to flee, right? Absolutely. Preach it. Amen. If you have a prevailing sin in your life, if you struggle with, with being excessive as far as drinking goes, you're not going to go try to evangelize people, right, on the, on the weekends at bars. That's foolish. That's not wise. But you could still evangelize nevertheless, right? And take certain precautions and set certain parameters around your life and protection and accountability, still having a heart for those who need to be delivered from that sin, Right? I'm not talking about becoming like people to win them because I hear the counters right now. I am talking, beloved, about being in the world but not being of it and having a heart for the lost as somebody had a heart for you at some point in your life and God used them as an instrument in the Redeemer's hands to share the message of Jesus with you. Amen? That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the Great Commission for crying out loud. Being a disciple-making disciple. Like our Lord Jesus set the pattern and the example for us. That we should build His church by making disciples. Or that He would build His church by making disciples. So let me ask you, personally, do you pray for opportunities to share your faith and look for those opportunities and are sensitive to those opportunities to share your faith? Do you make time to interact with non-believers in your family, in your neighborhood, acquaintances that you may have? Do you have people over your home that are non-Christians? Oh, I just invite believers over. I want to be edified. Hmm. 
We'll keep going down that path. Let me ask you this for some of us who are parents. Do you invite, if you have kids that are in public schools, or maybe not in public schools, or maybe homeschooled, and not every homeschool kid is, is a believer, right, homeschool parents? We say the same thing too, right? So do you have, do you have your kids or allow your kids to invite non-Christian friends over to your house? I understand that we need to protect our kids, and we need to be wise, and we need to be prudent, and there are unique situations where we shouldn't allow certain associations. Absolutely. But some of us live in a state of fear, beloved. Constantly. We don't ever interact with any non-believer, and we would never even allow our kid to, to have anyone over who's not a Christian. Why? Why? You have a wonderful opportunity if you have a cultivating a godly marriage to live that out before that non-believing kid so that they would see a picture of Christ and the church and you're able to share the gospel. And then those kids become inroads to other families, right? We've had an opportunity to interact with parents and share our faith and share the gospel because of the fact that we had their non-believing kids in our home. So think about that. Do we live with a sense of mission? Thanksgiving and Christmas are coming up. Wonderful opportunities to interact with non-believers, non-believing family members, non-believing people in our community, non-believing neighbors. You don't even need an excuse to, to go out and reach out to them, right? Hey, I'm coming over for, for Thanksgiving. We had extra this turkey. I wanted to see if, if we could give this to you. Would you like this? Hey, my wife makes an amazing apple pie. We thought that maybe you would like a piece of pie, Right? How about opportunities like that? How about flooring people with a great attitude at the, at the, when you're shopping for Christmas and showing them the love of Christ? And if somebody's fighting and they're chomping at the bits to get it in front of you, you say, hey, you know what? Go ahead, go for it, go for it. <laughs> right? A person's going to fall over and have a heart attack, right? you letting me go first? Yeah, yeah. And let me tell you about Christ, right? I mean, not straight out like that, right? Lead into it a little bit, right? Use some strategy, right? You get, you get that, that you need to kind of get this heart of what I'm saying, right? We need to use every opportunity, beloved, that we have to be disciple-making disciples, right? So what do we learn from our Lord? That while not compromising, He invaded a hostile world and He reached out to people, spent time with people, and called all kinds of people to repentance, right? And we are called to walk in His steps. I love what John MacArthur says. You know, we can worship God better and more perfectly in heaven. So why are we here? Think about that. I like that. If we can worship God better and perf more perfectly in heaven, amen to that, then why are we here? We're here on mission to make disciples, right? That's why we're here. So let's do that. Let's do that. R. Ken Hughes writes in closing, quote, Christ and his followers did not and still must not isolate themselves from a needy world, nor assimilate it, that means become like it, no, they went out with Christ in mission. The Christian's life is not to be one of isolation, nor assimilation, but of mission. And that's what we learned from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the great missionary. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your grace in our lives.
We thank you for the fact that, Lord, if it were not for your saving grace and your son, Jesus Christ, we would not be here. Lord, thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you that he paid for our sins sufficiently. Thank you that he took upon our punishment that we deserved. And Lord, we pray that we would have a heart for sinners such as ourselves. That we would not deal with people in categories, but as people who have souls, who are going to live forever, even either in heaven or in hell. Lord, help us to bring your truth, the truth of the gospel of the person and the work of your son to bear upon their lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.